Uh, but we're going to spend some time now looking at the scriptures. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We're going to be continuing this series that we've called the first followers of Jesus. What we're looking at is the first followers of Jesus and how they were amazed by Jesus and how they were called by Jesus to follow him. And we want to do the same thing, right? We want to be amazed at Jesus. Jesus is amazing. And then we want to follow him. We want to learn from him. We want to be disciples and apprentices of Jesus. And so this week we're calling it a model of faith. Jesus is going to turn our eyes and our attention to look at John the Baptist and say, pay attention to John the Baptist. This is what it looks like to have a walk of faith, to be someone that trusts God and and walks with him. Look at the life of John the Baptist, even though his life at this point was getting a little confusing. John the Baptist was in prison. John the Baptist's ministry before he was thrown into prison was a ministry out in the wilderness where he ate weird food and dressed in rough clothing. He lived kind of a wild, crazy life. And yet Jesus is saying, this wild, crazy life, this man who's now been thrown in prison, this is a model for you to follow. When we were studying in Israel, we would come to these ruins, these sites of ancient cities and palaces and and synagogues and temples. And you could make out the outline of the rooms and the gates, and there would be walls. And some of the walls were all the way to the top. Some of the walls were just partial. And it was a little hard to make sense of the ruins of the city. Sometimes there was so much brokenness and so much disorder that it was hard to put it all together together. And so there's this really wonderful gift that many of the sites had, and archaeologists would put together a model of the city. So you could see the whole outline. You'd have a three-dimensional model, and you can see, oh, this building was three stories tall, and this building was two stories tall, and this is the entrance, and here's the, the outline, and here's the wall of the city. And it helped you to put it all together. And that's what Jesus is doing here with the life of John the Baptist. He's going to say, yeah, look at the model of his life. Here's, here's a model. You can make sense of faith and what it looks like to follow God by looking at the life of John the Baptist. We do this often in the Bible. We look at characters in the Bible and we don't necessarily imitate everything they did because many characters in the Bible did wrong things, but we imitate their faith, their model of faith. And that's what Jesus is pointing us to here with John the Baptist. What I want to do is I want to read verses 24 through 30 of Luke chapter 7. It can be found on page 862 in the Black Bibles if you want to follow along in one of those Black Bibles. But as I said earlier, it's Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read a middle portion of our text this morning, and then we'll go back and look at the other details around it as we move through our exposition of the text. So starting in verse 24 of Luke chapter 7. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. This is John the Baptist. He says, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man? Dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not 
having been baptized by him. We have this contrast set up of the common people saying, God is just and we need to repent of our sins. That's what his baptism was about. We learned way back in Luke chapter 3. It's this baptism, this ceremonial washing of just saying, I give up, I surrender. I need God to save me. I can't save myself. God's just, I'm not. That's the fundamentals of the gospel. And then there are these religious people that refuse the purposes of God. And they said, no, I don't, I don't need to repent. I don't need forgiveness. I don't need God's grace because I can save myself. I'm good enough on my own. And there's a division, two ways of relating to God. Humility and admitting that you need God's grace or pride and saying, no, I don't, I don't want any part of that. And so we're seeing once again this, this division of how people reacted to Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist who called people to the same good news, we're told, preaching the good news of God saves, God judges. But if you turn to him in repentance, he'll save, he'll forgive you. So trust him, turn to him. That was the message of John. It's also the message of Jesus. Luke, particularly, more than any other gospel writer, weaves together the story of John the Baptist and Jesus. It's really interesting. We, we saw it when we were looking at the first few chapters going into Christmas. There's like this uh, miraculous announcement of the birth of John the Baptist and a miraculous announcement of the birth of Jesus, right? And there's this kind of sameness and difference, sameness and difference. They were on the same team. They were telling the same story. And yet here we're going to kind of see their, their ministries divide. One ministry is passing away and the other ministry, the ministry of Jesus is increasing here. It's a transition point in their ministries, in their teamwork, if you will. So let me pray that God would teach us from this text what it looks like to follow this model of faith that John the Baptist was, what it looks like ultimately to follow Jesus. So let me pray. God, we pray that you would teach us that your spirit would be here with us, that you would convict us of sin, that you would magnify the goodness, the grace of Jesus in our hearts. You would help us to hear your word, receive it, respond to it in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, the big idea is a, a model of faith. There are questions about John the Baptist. He's in prison, again, contextually. Uh, we were told that at the end of Luke chapter 3, and now it's picking up. This is the next thing we hear about John the Baptist a few chapters later. And so we know he's in prison. He was thrown in prison for tell, uh, telling King Herod that he was doing the wrong thing, that he was sinning. He got thrown in prison. Later, he gets killed for it. And he's questioning things, right? And so Jesus can say, look at the model of John the Baptist. Look at how he followed God, what it meant for him to trust in God and follow that model. And there are going to be three things that John the Baptist does that are models for us to follow. This is what it looks like to be a person that has faith in God. Number one, it's ask questions without quitting. Ask questions without quitting. That's what we see John do first. Number two, grow a biblical backbone. Grow a biblical backbone. That was really the middle section we read about. He was not a reed swinging in the wind, but he had a biblical backbone. And then number three, listen to God's wisdom. Listen to God's wisdom. So number one, the first idea is that we should ask questions without quitting. We see this in verses 18 through 23. John was locked up by Herod, who was a ruthless mocker. He was exactly the type of man that God promised he would stop in his prophecies in Isaiah 29. And John the Baptist is preaching this message that God is coming. God's justice is coming. John the Baptist was preparing the way for the Lord to come, for the arrival of Yahweh. He was preaching this message. He was warning people to turn 
and ask God to forgive them, to repent of their sins. And, and what's the result of John's ministry of speaking up to Herod? He gets thrown in prison. I grabbed a picture of an ancient prison. We didn't see this prison when we were in Israel, but we saw many things like this in Israel and in Rome, ancient prisons. They don't have any of the modern amenities that the wonderful soft prisons we have today have, right? No matter what, though, it'd be bad to be in prison. It's a bad thing. And John was languishing. He was suffering. He was hurting. They're in prison and about to die. What we see in John is in this circumstance, he asks questions about what's going on, but he doesn't quit the faith completely. We see in verse 18, we pick up the story, the disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord. Now, reported all these things refers back to what Jim preached on last week, which was Jesus amazing people, healing people, showing that he could be trusted. So Jesus is showing that God's power is at work. Jesus is embodying the saving, healing power of Yahweh on earth. And when that report goes to John, then the question comes, right? Because there is confusion. There's real confusion. He's in prison. Things don't seem to be going well. And yet Jesus is healing. He seems to have this incredible power. And so verse 19, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? It sounds repetitive because it is. We've heard the question twice. What's the question? Are you the one or should we look for another? Now, there are two theories about this. The, the first theory is the one that I've tended to believe, which is John the Baptist is genuinely confused. When you would hear the message of John the Baptist, there was an emphasis on full consummation, on what we now, in our understanding of kind of prophetic timeline, would say, that's not here yet, that's coming in the future, right? Two comings of Christ, first coming for salvation and forgiveness and his death on the cross, and then the second coming is him judging everything and a complete division of, of wickedness and those of faith. And, and so there's this still future finishing of the work of God that hasn't come yet. But from the message of John the Baptist and all the Old Testament prophets, there seemed to be a blending of these things, right? Just this future where God does all these things and they're all just together. You know, it's just kind of jumbled and mixed. But we learn from the New Testament, like, oh, okay, it's, it's coming in stages, and so right now Jesus is healing and he's going to die for our sins on the cross, but he hasn't kind of reckoned everything. He hasn't cleaned up the universe completely yet. There's still a finishing work to come. And so I've always seen this as John the Baptist genuinely being confused, like really having the question. Other commentators think he was just being a good teacher and he was passing his disciples onto Jesus. He was giving them the question that they probably had and encouraging them to go ahead and ask it. What's the application for us? Either way, it's the same. Either way, the application is ask your questions. Don't quit the faith, but ask your questions. And this is so important because our world presses us to one extreme or the other, especially in, in the age of social media and just the way those um, programs work to divide us and increase divisive opinions on things. The opinions can either be if you ask questions, you don't believe in faith at all anymore. You've just deconstructed everything. Or the other extreme of don't ask questions. Don't, don't ask. Just don't question anything, right? Here we see this model of asking questions without 
quitting the faith. So let's continue the story. Verse 21, it goes on and it says, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So let me set it up for you again. The disciples of John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, just for clarification for those that are new to the Bible, John the Apostle, follower of Jesus, was a son of Zebedee, a fisherman. He wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. That's a different John. I know it's confusing. We have two really important Johns, okay? And John the Baptist was this other guy preparing the way for Jesus. And John the Baptist's disciples are like, are you the one, or should we look for another? And what does Jesus do? He's like, hold on a second. And he goes and heals some people, right? Like he doesn't just answer him. He's like, let me go heal some people and I'll come back and answer that question. So again, verse 22, no, verse 21, in that hour, so it's like right then, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Verse 22, then he answered him. So Jesus goes and heals some people. Then he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who's not tripped up by me. That Greek word offense is scandalon. We have the word scandal, right? These things that distract, confuse, upset, make people lose their faith. Jesus says again and again throughout his ministry, there's kind of two responses to the scandal that I am. There's two responses to the tripping stone that I am. One is to let it deconstruct you, ask questions, and trust that God is good and you're not. That's the Isaiah 6 reaction. That's the letting yourself be pulled apart by God. Doubt the things you believed before, but trust in God. Ask your questions, but don't quit on faith. The other response is to just quit altogether, to be crushed by this stumbling stone that Jesus describes. So Jesus is saying, yeah, ask your questions, but don't quit. Don't give up. And recognize that that's so rare in our culture. Our culture either says, yeah, the people that ask questions are too cool to believe it all, or there are the real believers that never ask questions. And the Bible actually says, no, every Bible character does both runs to God in a relationship of trust, but asks hard questions. Every Old Testament hero, Abraham did this, Habakkuk did this. All these heroes of the faith were like, God, what are you doing? Jacob's name was changed to Israel. He who wrestles with God. We need to have an honest relationship with God. We need to wrestle with him, ask questions, not to be offended, not to be tripped up when Jesus surprises us, not to quit but to keep asking our questions. We want to allow him to reshape us, to pull our worldview apart, but we keep going back to him for answers. When we have doubts, when we're questioning our system or the faith of our parents, we don't say automatically, okay, then I'm just not going to believe in anything anymore, right? That's the lazy way to go. That's the bad kind of deconstruction where you're just like, oh, this is the cool trend now to just throw it all out. Because there's this one thing that I didn't like that didn't fit, so I'm just going to throw out faith altogether. No, bring your questions to God. And we can, we can misunderstand this because ultimately our faith is in a person. And so there are kind of two things we need to believe in simultaneously. 
there are propositional truths that we need to learn. You need to study theology. You need to read your Bible. You need to learn the facts of God and who he is and what he says. But your allegiance isn't ultimately to a list of doctrines. It's to a person. So again, the extremes. We can just throw out systematic theology, just throw out doctrine, throw out theology. Oh, we don't want to believe any of that. It's all about a person. Well, yes, it's all about a person, but we want to learn the truth about him. So it's just this constant editing that we're going through, relearning who he is and what he says, and we learn it from the scriptures in a relationship of trust with God. So I just, again, appreciated so much what Jim had to say last week from his sermon on trusting God. It comes down fundamentally to trusting God. Do you trust God? Do you trust that he cares for you? If you do, then, then you can bring your questions to him. Then you can bring your problems to him. So two ways, I think, practically that we can do this. How we can ask questions without quitting. Uh, lament and apologetics. These are things I've emphasized a lot over the years in my preaching. Lament is taking our feeling questions to God. And apologetics is taking our logic questions to God. So we need to do both. You need to take your feeling questions to God, your, your pain, your anger, your tears, your sadness, your confusion, your exasperation. The Psalms are full of these prayers. That's what we do when we, we pray, oh God, how long? Why, Lord? And we can take these relationally to God. Lament, taking your feeling questions to God. And then apologetics is the art, the discipline of wrestling with reasons and logic. You're reading something in the scripture and you're like, this doesn't seem to agree with this. And, and one thing you can do is just throw the book out the window, right? Or you could actually study some more and stop being so lazy. You could actually study your Bible, right? Or maybe seek out some good apologetics books that help you wrestle with the reasons for the faith. I want to encourage you to keep going, to ask questions, but don't quit. Don't give up. Ask your questions without quitting. There are some great teachers in the realm of apologetics. They're not perfect. They don't have all the answers. It's not a silver bullet, but these guys have really been helpful in my own ministry. C.S. Lewis, famous British teacher, wrote more from an artistic kind of literary standpoint, but great apologetics. Mere Christianity is his classic. There's R.C. Sproul, who's a great teacher who really helps to clarify themes of modern atheism and systematic theology and things like that. Again, these, these guys aren't right about everything, but they're helpful in putting together a systematic defense for the reasons with the questions that we have. Uh, and then Tim Keller, who just passed away last week, who was a hero uh, of my faith, wrote the book Reason for God. Um, just really helpful teachers that kind of help you put together the reason. We have logical questions and we have emotional questions. Both of them we can take to God. Lament and apologetics. Jesus is the answer, not your ability to figure everything out. So I just want to encourage you with that. In the process, you'll be taking these questions to God. Your emotional questions, your, your reasonable, rational questions. Um, ask Jesus what's going on. Sometimes he says, here's the reason. And you go to the text or you study some apologetics or you kind of wrestle through some emotional, traumatic things you've struggled with that have made life confusing. And you find some tangible, helpful answers. Sometimes he says, Wait. Sometimes he says, you're just not going to get the answer yet. Again, we don't give up. We don't quit. But we're like, okay, Jesus, I had to ask, right? And Romans 8, I think, is really helpful for this. Romans 8, 18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is so encouraging. 
And again, this isn't a, that verse is not meant to shut us up. But that verse is great comfort to us when we've already asked our questions and we don't always get the answers that we're looking for. So number two, we want to grow a biblical backbone. Grow a biblical backbone. This is personal for me. I have a bad back. I uh, hurt my back when I was 15 playing sports. I've got a kink in it, right? And so what we see in John the Baptist is he had a spine of steel, biblically speaking, right? He did not sway in the wind, but he stood his ground biblically. And we see this in verses 24 through 28. So grow a biblical backbone. Starting in verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What's that illustration? He's saying you didn't go out to see somebody that just flopped around, right? You didn't go out to see this tall grass that blows in the wind. I grabbed a picture here of tall grass reeds by the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus did most of his ministry and John operated nearby as well. There were these reeds that would grow by the rivers, by the sea, and they would just wave in the wind, right? You've probably seen tall grass out there just blowing around. He's saying that's not what John was like. John had this spine of steel. He had a biblical backbone. He had a strength to him. He had a a centering to him. He goes on, adds, adds more layers to the illustration. Verse 25, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No. We know he, he wore this itchy uh, camel hair clothing, right? He ate locust and honey. And so again, the idea here, we want to separate circumstances from the main principle. The idea here is not, okay, follow John the Baptist, move out to the wilderness, uh, stop brushing your hair, eat locust and honey, wear crazy clothes. That's not, that's not the idea, right? It's to have a, a biblical backbone, to have this spine of, of truth standing on what is right. So follow this illustration. You didn't go to see someone dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. So Jesus is saying, you didn't go to see someone dressed fancy who swang in the wind, and his illustrations are building towards something we know with the fuller picture of his critiques of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law They were always compromising with power. They wanted money. They were corrupt. They wanted to be rich. They wanted to impress kings. They wanted to impress people. And so they were often swaying in the wind. He's saying, no, John the Baptist was willing to speak truth to power in such a way that he got thrown in jail and he's going to now get killed for it. That's what you love about John the Baptist. And Jesus is like, be like that. That's what you want to imitate that he's willing to die for his faith. He's willing to die for the truth. Do we have that kind of faith? Do we have that kind of spine of steel? Have we grown that kind of biblical backbone? Are you, am I, willing to speak the truth even if it means I lose my job? Even if it means I get thrown in jail? Even if it means I get killed for my faith? That's a model of faith. That's what we're told to imitate here. What then did you go out to see? Verse 26, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. He's telling us that John is the greatest man that's ever lived. He's like, okay, of all the men born of women, How many men qualify there? 
That'd be all the men, right? Uh, there's no one greater. And then he adds this weird comment, but I tell you, the one in the kingdoms, least in the kingdom, smallest member of the kingdom, is even greater than John. So he's commending John. He's like, John's got this backbone of steel. He spoke the truth. He wasn't a reed just swaying around. He didn't dress up to impress people. He just obeyed God. And we want to follow that example. And he's saying, guess what? If you belong to the kingdom, you can be even greater than John. This is a beautiful picture here. We see uh, some little pieces of what you will learn in systematic theology as the transition in the history of the covenants that God makes with his people. The transition from the old covenant. This is the covenant that God makes with his people, Israel, through Moses. So it's sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8 and Jeremiah 31 refers to it as the Old Covenant. So there were older covenants that went before, but this was kind of the big main one. So it's called the Old Covenant, and it's contrasted with the New Covenant, the Jesus Institutes. When we talk about communion, he's talking about the, the New Covenant instituted in his blood and his death. Jesus brought in a New Covenant, and we've talked about that as, this as we've studied the Old Testament recently. Uh, same morality between the Old and New Covenant, right? Same moral law, same story that we're sinners trapped outside of paradise and we need God to bring us in. We need God to forgive us. We need sacrifices to be made to make us holy, to cleanse us, to purify us, right? So same story, same morality, but different stage that's set, right? Old Covenant had all these extra details about food and these purity laws and these symbols of these sacrifices that are made. And Hebrews comes in and says, yeah, those secondary things have been pushed to the side now because we've got the fuller story in Jesus. And so in systematic theology, you can begin piecing all these things together. Systematic theology is just tying doctrines together all the different places they appear, right? So you'd say, where do we have uh, data about the Old and New Covenant? Well, you could go to 2 Corinthians 5, and you could go to Hebrews 8, you could go to Jeremiah 31, you could go to this passage here and and Luke chapter 3, and you just kind of pile up all your texts and you start putting together a systematic theology, right? So we talked before, it's good to have systems, doctrines, facts, learn the Bible. And that's part of what we see being built up here. But, but that's really not the main point of this passage, is it? What's the main point? The main point is that he's a model for us to follow. He is devoted absolutely to the Lord all the way to his death, his faithfulness, his care. He is following God all the way to the end. He's not being swayed by the wind of public opinion, men dressing up to curry favor politically. He has a a spine of steel, a biblical background, a biblical backbone. So by way of application, if you want to grow a biblical backbone, it's good to ask like, where, where are my weak points? Where are my weak points? And I'm speaking metaphorically here. Where are your weak points morally? Now, biologically, my weak point is right here, right? Like, this is it. This is my weak point. So if I'm going to go lift heavy things, if I'm going to help you move, or if I'm going to go, like, play some sports that I'm really told to play, I'll put on, like, this back brace, right, to, like, hold myself together because I know I'm weak right here. I have a bad back. And I think that's just a common sense morally. Are there areas that you continue to struggle? You need help. Ask for help. That's biblical humility. Part of growing a biblical backbone is having the biblical humility to say, man, I think I need a back brace, right? I, I think I'm weak. I think I'm limping in this area. So what are those areas for you? It might be the fear of man, the desire to please people. It might be continued moral uh, failure. You just kind of continue to trip up in certain areas. 
Uh, It might be certain addictions. It might be certain struggles. You might lack discipline in your life. You might lack compassion. So what are things you can do? Well, you can pray about it. You can ask friends to bring accountability into your life. That's one of the central things that we believe is important about uh, small group Bible studies, relationships of accountability is actually sharing your life and praying for each other and helping each other out. Having someone you can call when you're struggling with that continued failure or area of weakness so you can embrace yourself. You can kind of begin to grow a biblical background where you're not a reed that's swaying in the wind, but you're standing strong on God's truth. And then pursue further biblical clarity in that area. Whatever your area of struggle is, you need to become like an expert biblically in that area. You should know as much or more about that area than I do, right? You should be studying your Bible. Like, what does God have to say about this? This area where I continue to struggle, you need to, you need to search that out. You need to study that and understand that. So these are ways that you can grow a biblical backbone. As we said, we're not exactly sure if John or his disciples were struggling more with the lack of justice that was happening. But what's really interesting is when Jesus quotes these prophecies to John's followers, he's like, you've got these healings that are taking place. You've got this uh, blind people seeing. You've got all these wonderful things showing, uh, being shown by Jesus healing people. And then Jesus speaking about these. Jesus is quoting these prophecies from Isaiah. And what he leaves out is the captives being set free from prison. He's like, but John, that's not happening. That's not happening. And here, Jesus is saying, but John's got the biblical backbone to endure that. He's going to be okay. Question is, are you and I going to be okay? Can we have that same kind of biblical backbone? Okay, number three, listen to God's wisdom. Listen to God's wisdom. We see this in verses 29 through 35. I think this might be the most confusing section, but hopefully as we put it in context, it can make sense to us. Starting in verse 29, he says, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. They declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So again, summary of of John's baptism, a preaching of the good news. God will save, but God is also a uh, a just judge. And so you need to repent and turn from your sin. And so the people hearing this about John were like, yeah, God is just. I'm not. I need to trust God to save me. They're, they're understanding. They have faith. But then it goes on, verse 30, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So in contrast, the religious people did not trust God, but trusted in themselves, justified themselves. I'm religious. I don't need God's help. I can do it on my own. And Jesus and John both would say that's that's very dangerous. That's not going to work. The right way is to declare God and God alone just and say, God, I need you to save me. I need your grace. We see this most clearly come to the fruition in Jesus' death and resurrection at the end of the story. But there's a general posture that all people of faith should have, and that is God's holy, I'm not. I just have to entrust myself to God's mercy. God, will you save me? And he does that through the death and resurrection of his son. So verse 31, Jesus says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? Now, to be clear, he's not saying generation like Gen Z, Gen X. He's talking specifically about the Pharisees and the lawyers who are rejecting the good news. 
So he's saying, to what should I compare the people that reject the truth of God? What should I compare them to? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. Okay, so this point is listen to God's wisdom. What are you listening to? Are you listening to God's wisdom? Or are you listening to the voices, the songs of culture? The siren songs that are pulling you away from God? Or are you listening to God's wisdom? He says, people that don't listen to the truth of John the Baptist or of Jesus are like children in the marketplace calling to one another. Now, to be clear, Jesus praises children a lot in the New Testament. So I just have to say this. Uh, Jesus honored children. Jesus loved children. He said we should have the faith of a child. We should be like uh, children in our posture before God, trusting, simple, just come to God in faith. He blesses the little children. He, he loved children, right? But here, this is a negative example. So here, um, this is kind of like Jesus saying, those that don't have faith are like bratty four-year-olds playing games and getting mad at each other, right? I don't know if you've ever been around kids, but sometimes you're somewhere and the kid comes and says, so-and-so didn't do what I wanted, right? He's saying that's, that's what the religious leaders are like. They're like taking their ball and going home. I grabbed a picture of children playing. Uh, these are real children playing real games. Um, I'm just kidding. I just thought it'd be helpful in case you've never seen children playing before. Maybe you should see a picture. <laughs> Let me read the text. Sorry. This is what the children say in Jesus' story. They say, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. So the kids are complaining that the other kids didn't do what they wanted. And then the next line, we sang a dirge. That's a sad song, a, a song of grieving. And you did not weep. Again, the kids are complaining that the other kids didn't do what they wanted. And Jesus is going to connect this to what the religious leader said about John the Baptist and Jesus, right? Follow me down to 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. So John the Baptist had the really strict ministry. And they're like, ah, oh, that's too strict. We hate it. He's not doing what we want. So like children saying, he's not playing our game. And then Jesus turns to his own ministry and says, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. So John the Baptist is like really strict and hard, right? Living out in the wilderness, preaching fire and brimstone. And they're like, oh, he's bad. We don't like him. He's got a demon. And then Jesus is like partying and hanging out with sinners, right? He's eating and drinking and going to banquets. And they're like, oh, we don't like him. He's, he's a drunkard and a glutton, right? That's specific language. It was used in Deuteronomy of the rebellious son that needed to be stoned, by the way. And so we've got this contrast of, we have kind of this harsh ministry of John, but that wasn't good enough. We have this kind of joyful ministry of Jesus, but that's not good enough. It's like, they don't like the Baptists. They don't like the Presbyterians. They don't like anybody. <laughs> to get the joke, those that are into theology got the joke there. It's like, it's like nothing is good enough for them because they just want you to do what they say. And Jesus is saying, okay, John the Baptist and Jesus, we're, we're listening to God's wisdom. We're not just listening to the songs of the leaders of the day. We're not just swayed in the wind. We're not just dancing and playing little games here, but we're listening to God's wisdom. Most commentators think this is a throwback to Proverbs chapter 8 where we're called to hear wisdom calling out to us on the street. We're to delight in the wisdom of God. We're to see wisdom as, as beautiful. 
we just studied Proverbs last year, and there's some really rich stuff we learned from that. Are you, are you listening to God's truth? Are you listening to God's wisdom? Are you listening to the siren song of, of the children crying out to you and saying, no, do this, no, do that, no, do what I want, no, do, it. do this other thing? Or are we listening to God's wisdom? Specifically with the religious leaders, they had this problem of rejecting the truth of God that convicted them of their own failure and need. It's this key essential part of being a follower of God that you would admit your weakness, that you would be humble before God, that you would say, yeah, God is just. I'm not. He's the one that I need. We have this bookend of this section of verse 29 and verse 35. The people that trusted God said, God is just and I'm not, and they repented of their sins. And then Jesus says in verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. He's saying if you listen to God's wisdom, you'll be shown, proven right through behavior. You'll prove that God's wisdom is right by the way that you live. There'll, this is kind of like going back to the fruit and root analogy that he's used so much. If your roots are tapped down into the wisdom of God, as Psalm 1 says, then you will bear fruit, even in seasons of drought and difficulty and pain. Even when you get locked up in prison, there will still be a, a fruitfulness in a life that you will bear supernaturally. You'll begin to justify God's wisdom just by being a child of wisdom, a child of God, one who listens to wisdom crying out on the street corner as Proverbs 8 describes. Don't justify yourself, but trust God and do what he says. Sounds really simple but it's the hardest thing in the world, right? Don't justify yourself. Let God justify you by the death and resurrection of son. Trust him. Trust that he knows what he's doing. And then, and then do what he says. Uh, by way of a cross-reference, bringing in John the Baptist again in the book of Luke, you can look at Luke 16 later on, where once more Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, saying they want to justify themselves. They don't want to trust in God's justice They want to justify themselves. They want to prove themselves better than other people. So don't justify yourself. Trust God. Listen to God's wisdom. The the most simple way to apply this is, is reading Scripture, singing Scripture, memorizing Scripture, studying Scripture. If you're not doing those things, you'll begin to listen to and be dominated by the siren song of all the children of our culture shouting different things. Try this, try that, do this, do that. We have to root ourselves in Scripture. We have to listen to God's Word that's active. It's not not passive. You need to carve out time and space in your life to study God's Word, to memorize God's Word, to sing God's Word, to, to study Scripture. Okay, we need to wrap up here. If you're confused, look for a model. If you're confused, look for a model. That's the big idea. And John the Baptist is a great model. There are many other models in the Old Testament. Hebrews 11 says, look at all these models of faith. We don't go back and and imitate every crazy thing that biblical characters did because some of the things they did were sin. But we imitate their faith. John the Baptist, Jesus is laying out here as a great model to follow in the confusing maze of faith, of following Jesus that we're walking through. There's a parallel in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 11, one, just kind of the very end of that section. We studied that a few years ago. 
And in that section, Paul's like, man, whatever you do, glorify God. Like, if you're not sure what to do, right, you're, you're facing a complex issue, honor God, glorify God, justify God, declare God just, right? And then uh, Paul adds in that section, also just make sure you're clarifying the good news of Jesus. Make sure people understand the good news of Jesus. If you're not sure what to do, you're in a complicated moral scenario, make sure people can see and hear and taste the good news of Jesus. And then Paul ends that section with 1 Corinthians 11. 1. He's like, okay, you're still confused? Just follow me as I follow Jesus, right? I'll be your model. And the scripture does that again and again, right? Ultimately, it's about following Jesus, but God gives us the gift of these little models. He gives us these little 3D maps. As we learned in, in this section, ask questions without quitting, just like we see John the Baptist doing him and his disciples. We also see the need to have a, a biblical backbone. Stand for what's true, even if that means you're going to get fired or even lose your head. And then finally, practice the ongoing discipline of listening to God's wisdom. Listen to God's voice. Don't listen to the other voices that are trying to make you dance this other song, but dance and listen to the words of God's word. If you're confused, look for a model and recognize that that Jesus is the ultimate model. He's the one that invites you to follow him. He's the one that gave his life for you. He's the one that loves us more than anyone else. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us, that you gave yourself for us, that we can follow you. We thank you for the model of John the Baptist. We thank you, Jesus, most of all, for the model that you've given us in your own life. Help us to follow you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.